Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. And this is found on page 1034 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. This is Revelation 11, 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and time for the dead to be judged, and for your rewarding, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to the Christ Community. We're so glad you're here, and especially if this is your either your first Sunday back with us in the building, or uh, maybe this is your first time uh, with us at Christ Community ever. We're so glad that you're here this morning, and we have lots of folks who uh, join us uh, online each week as well, and so they're still very much part of our church family and church community, even if we're not here present uh, in the building together, and we're grateful for that. And we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and uh, we're here in chapter 11. We'll be looking at kind of um, all the way from 8 to 11, kind of the themes that culminate here in chapter 11. But as we prepare to do that, I'd love to begin by praying and asking for God's help as we look at his word together in this. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us this book of Revelation to close out our Bibles that give us uh, just a really a confident hope for the future, uh, that we know who is ultimately reigning, uh, no matter how chaotic or confusing um, this moment might seem, uh, that you are the one who is on the throne. And so to the one who is on the throne, who's reigning. It's in his name that we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, back in April, uh, the journalist Terry Gross interviewed writer Stephen King, and I love that the title of the article is, Stephen King is Sorry You Feel Like You're Stuck in a Stephen King Novel, uh, which I thought was a great, great headline for that. Uh, and, you know, Stephen King is a great storyteller, and I think he's probably one of the best storytellers of our time, of, our, of this generation. And he's written many books that, I mean, he's kind of known for his horror writing. I think that's what people think of when they hear Stephen King. But he's written a lot of books that aren't in that genre, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, The Green Mile, 112263, about the Kennedy assassination. Um, but until recently, I had never read anything by him. I hadn't read any of those books, any of his kind of more classic uh, suspense or horror novels. Um, and I just assumed that his, his horror writings were just these really gory, kind of gross stories that I wouldn't want anything to do with. It's not my thing. Um, but this spring, at the urging of a friend, I decided to try The Shining, which is probably his, his most well-known classic uh, piece of writing. And let me tell you, it's definitely creepy, and it's certainly not for everyone. So, you know, don't, don't run out and read The Shining just because Pastor Bill mentioned it on, on Sunday. Um, but it was a very different kind of scary than what I had expected. 
And then on vacation in August, I read the sequel that he wrote to it called Dr. Sleep. And here's what I'm discovering as I'm reading Stephen King. Uh, in his stories, three things uh, I've noticed are, are true. One, that evil is always real. It's not just an imaginary thing or an illusory thing. Evil is real. Uh, two, in his stories, evil is never merely human. It's also supernatural. It's never merely human. It's also supernatural. And evil is always defeated by goodness through sacrifice. Those themes come up in his writing over and over and over again. And in particular, at the end of the novel, Dr. Sleep, as the story sort of moves to its, this climactic conflict, you find yourself, or at least I find myself, actually hating the evil more than I was afraid of it. I think what's well, one of the brilliant things about it, you find yourself despising, hating, wanting to see it defeated more than you're even afraid of it. And one of the things that Revelation, this book we've been looking at together, is revealing, uncovering, making known, is that we are living in a story, a story with heroes and villains, that there are narratives and competing stories in our world that beckon us. And many of these competing stories, they promise hope, they promise rescue and fulfillment, they promise to make the sad things come untrue, and that's that title that we've drawn on in this series from J.R.R. Tolkien, that great line of is perhaps all the sad things going to come untrue? These competing stories, they, they promise that the sad things will come untrue. Stories of, of power or safety, fulfillment, comfort, financial security, all that promise to give us what we long for, to find the soothing for the emptiness or the ache, the loneliness, the pain, the insecurity, and as Christians, as the local church across time and space and geography and language and culture and tribe, we also have a story to tell. We too have a story to tell. And Revelation is the final chapter in that story. And I believe that the story we have to tell as the church is a better story. And it is time to tell that story. And, and again, our story is not that, that we're right and, and we're better and you're dumb if you don't believe our story. No, our story is come to the lamb who was slain, who, who gave his life to rescue you. Who can rescue, he's rescued us, he can rescue you too. But Jesus promised during his earthly ministry and Revelation confirms that the church will at times, really at various times in all times, will be hated for that story that it tells. Because for as many people who will be drawn to that story and come to it as, as, a, as a place of rescue and salvation and hope and healing, there are supernatural forces who are aligned against that story. And those who are caught in its sway who will do anything to stop it from being proclaimed. And as we look at this section of Revelation today, we are going to see that suffering for bearing witness to the story of the Lamb is inevitable, but it's not final. Suffering for bearing witness to the story of the Lamb is the inevitable experience of the church, but it's not the final experience of the church. It's the inevitable experience, but not the final 
We're going to be covering a big portion of Revelation today. We're going to look at, um, really, this, the section that we're going to be covering begins all the way back in chapter 8, but it comes to its kind of culminating point in chapter 11. It's the, the place where we're, we're going to be looking at um, these different judgments, the trumpet judgments, and that's why we're going to look at this kind of a section as a whole, together, this whole sequence of, of these trumpet um, judgments, this sequence here. And they begin in, in, in chapter 8, but they kind of culminate all the way to 11. And this is one of those sections in Revelation where the apocalyptic imagery is really turned up to the, to the max level, you know, or to, you know, if you've seen the Spinal Tap movie, right, it's, it's turned up to 11, you know, that's where uh, the imagery goes here. And so before diving into the heart of this text this morning, I want to just give us a few helps in reading Revelation. We've been trying to do this along the way because this is a tough book of the Bible to read. And by the way, if you um, haven't had a chance yet, on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock, various uh, campus pastors, um, it's a different group of three of us each week, uh, are doing a little extended conversation on uh, on Facebook live streaming. So if you have questions, you can text in questions during that time. And we're talking about Revelation. So if you want to join us tomorrow night for that, you can eight o'clock. It's called Nothing Else is On, um, and it's on Monday nights. And then, uh, yeah, so what, what are some helps in reading Revelation? Well, first, again, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which by design speaks of, of real reality. So it's speaking about real things, but in intentionally highly symbolic images. So Revelation is speaking of true, real realities but in highly symbolic language. So in that way, Revelation is more like Van Gogh's Starry Night than an image from the Hubble Space Telescope. And also, just like, you know, another kind of changing mediums, just like poetry communicates differently than a news report or a novel communicates. Right? And if you're not familiar with poetry, which many of us aren't familiar with apocalyptic literature, it takes more work to understand. You can't just sit down and, and read a, a poem and on its first pass kind of oh, get it all. Right? It uses metaphors, images, similes that create a feeling that engage our imagination, our right brain in a different kind of way. Revelation is doing the same thing. And I think sometimes we can get frustrated and say, well, why not just say it plainly? Just give me the facts. Tell me exactly what's going to happen and what it's going to look like. Why has God chosen to communicate like this to us? Well, I think part of it is because Revelation, apocalyptic literature in general, is not just designed to inform us about something that's going to happen in the future, something that has happened in the past, but it's designed to form us as people into the image of Christ to help us become a certain kind of person. So it's not just about informing, but about forming us. And the way that these images work in our imagination that requires us to mull over and go back and read the Old Testament and connect dots, it does that in a different kind of way than just a straight news report would. And and also, remember, just because something uses images and symbols doesn't mean it can't be speaking about true things, past, present, and future, as well as just because something is written in prose uh, in a news reporting style doesn't mean that it can't lie, right? So the genre uh, doesn't determine whether something is true or false, We have to be discerning of all types of writing, whether apocalyptic or news reporting. So that's the first thing. Second, then because we're dealing with highly symbolic literature, we need to be cautious about reading symbols. For example, like the locusts who are like horses with a human face and the teeth of lions and tails of scorpions as as physical descriptions. 
Rather, in apocalyptic literature, this is giving kind of characteristics of the indescribable. So they're getting at things like powerful and swift and intelligent and fierce and capable of intense, um, you know, kind of uh, activity, right? So these are not necessarily physical descriptions of a literal thing, but giving characteristic descriptions of what is going to be like. And they're depicting and revealing real realities, but doing so through these symbolic descriptions. Again, like the starry night when Van Gogh is, is painting, he's painting something very real. So, you know, you look at this painting, that, that is a, a night scene in southern France. He's painting, and you can go to southern France and see that night sky. It's not a made-up place. He's painting something real. But he's using the medium of post-impressionism to communicate more than photorealism ever could. His goal is not just to communicate merely facts, but also meaning. Not just to inform us about the night sky in France, but to capture our imaginations with the beauty and meaning and significance of it. And then third, kind of tip here on reading Revelation in these sections, is that it's not just about what will happen in the future, but also about what is happening in the present. And, and again, our goal in this series is not to parse out every detail, nor is it to, to map on every verse to current events of, that are happening in the news. And, you know, again, as enticing as that uh, feels like it would be here in 2020 when it does seem like, you know, maybe, you know, Stephen King is sorry you feel like you're trapped in a Stephen King now. We say, we're sorry we feel like we're trapped in Revelation right now. But rather, our goal is to understand these words and, and how they're meant to encourage us today, just as they were meant to encourage readers in the first century and as they have encouraged readers all throughout the history of the church in the fourth century and then eighth century and the twelfth century and so on. So yes, this book is about the future. Of course, it's about the future. But it's also about today. I love how New Testament expert Michael Gorman, no relation, uh, writes about this. He says, without ignoring the past or the future, in a general sense, the focus is on revelation as a word to the church in the present. And if you want to dive deeper again into understanding this, you can join us for those uh, campus pastor conversations on Monday nights. Um, also, a great resource is just to check out the Bible Project. Um, they have a couple really great videos, one on how to read apocalyptic literature, and another one just as an overview of the book of Revelation. So if you just put in the words Bible Project and Revelation into your, your Google search engine, those will pop up for you. Um, and that's just a great resource in general, the Bible Project. Now, this section we're looking at today in Revelation chapters 8 through 12 is a tough one. In fact, one commentator I read preparing for this says, this is perhaps the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire book of Revelation. So uh, that's our job for this morning is to take one of the most difficult books in the Bible and look at one of the most difficult passages in that book. Uh, but one of the things that is most clear in this passage is that we, as a church, we do have a better story to tell. And here are three truths that unfold in this section about that story. And the first is this, that the church will tell it. The church will tell it. The church will tell this better story as we are witnesses. That is one of the ways that the, Jesus is described as the faithful and true witnesses, but one of the ways that the church is described all throughout the book of Revelation is with the language of witness. And this section of Revelation we're looking at today, again, it begins back in 8-6 with the first trumpet and ends here in chapter 11. It's organized around these seven trumpets. And most of 8, 9, and 10 are just these really vivid and symbolic 
uh, pictures of judgment that are drawing on um, actually a lot of Old Testament imagery, in particular the imagery of the plagues that came on Egypt in the Old Testament, and more on those images later. But where am I getting this language of witness this morning? Well, if you look at 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, it says this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are two, the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And again, this is one of the most difficult sections to interpret uh, in this part of the Bible. But most scholars agree that the two witnesses represent, at least in part, part of what they represent is the local church. And the reason that they argue this is that, notice that language of a lampstand, which is used there. These are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord and the earth. Well, back in chapters 2 and 3, and the, even the end of chapter 1, the local church is described as a lampstand. Jesus is among the, the seven lampstands that represent those seven churches that he addresses those letters to. And so that lampstand imagery links this to the church. But now, what is the church bearing witness to, though? Again, being a faithful witness to Jesus is the ultimate, who is the ultimate faithful witness, is one of the key themes in the book. And, and what is it that the church testifies to, bears witness to? What, in this, what is the story telling us? We testify to the coming, the already breaking in, but not fully yet kingdom of God. We tell a story of sin, the story that sin is real. We tell the story that, that we cannot rescue ourselves, that, that our hope has to come outside of ourselves. And this is one of the things that, I'm, again, as, as I've been so affected by as I've read Stephen King's writing, that he makes you feel the darkness and helplessness of supernatural evil, that you can't defeat this on your own. That, that our problem is not just that we need better educational systems, Though we do need that, of course we need that, but that's not, our problem is deeper than that. We don't just need better and higher paying jobs, though we do need those. We don't just need better access to healthcare and, and better ways of paying for it, though of course we need to solve those problems. And we don't just need a better criminal justice system, though we desperately do need those things to be more closely aligned with the kingdom. But even if you look at all those things, even if you could wave a magic wand and you have a perfectly just system and, and all the jobs and all the healthcare and all the education, the, 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 the fundamental problem is still there. Because you can look at highly educated, wealthy people who have access to healthcare who've never had problems with the criminal justice system, and you still see people who are, have anxiety and depression and divorce and suicide. And in the end, no matter what our background is, we all are haunted by the fact that we will die. Our problem is deeper than education. It's deeper than jobs. It's deeper than money can fix or healthcare can fix. Ours is a story that there is a real enemy and that each one of us was born on his side, hating the true king but that that true king came to rescue us, to snatch us away from the enemy, and to give us new life. 
And the kingdom of God is coming. And when it comes in full, it will mean life and justice and flourishing and healing, which is why education and jobs and healthcare and all those things, they, why they all matter now because they are a foretaste of what is coming one day when Jesus' kingdom comes. And they, in doing those things well, can invite others to imagine what one day will be when the enemy is finally defeated and Jesus reigns supreme. So the church will tell the story, so speak up. And here's one easy way to do that. <laughs> invite others to church or invite them to watch our online service. At one level, it has never been easier to invite people to hear the story because, you know, until this pandemic, we never had online services. Now, every single week, we put an online service. So it'd be easy, and you don't have to be weird about it. I mean, but it'd be easy, right, to, to share uh, one of our online services with a friend or someone at work. And just something as simple as like, hey, friend, I was thinking about you today, and you know, this has been a crazy year. This is election season. It's just, man, it's awful. But my faith community, my church has been just a, a place of anchor and help for me in the midst of this. Um, if you ever want to check out one of our online services, here's the link. Something as simple as that. It's never been easier to invite someone to church than it is right now. As we do our work well, we also witness to the goodness of God. As we become the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, loving our neighbors and whatever it is that he's called us to do. So do your work well. It matters. It really matters, perhaps more than you will ever know. And I know that in this season, work is probably more difficult than you ever imagined it being. Uh, maybe it's difficult because you don't have work right now. Uh, maybe it's difficult because what you were planning to do in your sort of retirement second act time frame looks really different than what you thought it would be because of all the restrictions and shutdowns and lockups and all of those things. Maybe school's a lot harder because you're doing it online or you're going to school some days and not other days. But I just want to encourage you, friends, whatever your work looks like in this day, maybe you're staying home as a parent or a grandparent with kids helping them do online school and that's not what you thought you would be doing with your time this fall. But Jesus is using those things to form character within you. He's forming virtue in you. He's forming patience in you. And he's not surprised that you're in that place and you're not there by accident and he has a purpose for you. Whether that's helping kids with their iPads get onto their right class at the right time, whether it's serving clients, whatever it is, he has placed you in your particular avenue of work for this moment and he's using you there. So bear witness to the hope you have in the work you do. But even though we speak the story boldly and winsomely, a story of unfading hope and rescue, not all will be persuaded, right? Not everyone is going to come running and say, this is an amazing story. <laughs> Which brings us to the second truth about the story, and that is, and the language here is that the, in the text is that the nations will hate it. The nations will hate it. And this, this reality is, again, that John has sort of turned up all the imagery to the max volume level here. Take a look at 1117. And we see this. We give thanks, Lord God Almighty, who was and who, or who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And then listen to this. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. 
that the nations were angry. There is a world order. There is a system, and as well as individual hearts that are aligned against God's kingdom. As economist Brian Fickert out of uh, Covenant College, I love his uh, way he puts this. He says, broken people build broken systems which break people, which cause these cycles to continue. And when broken people and broken systems encounter the offer of wholeness and healing, the response is not always one of excitement, but is often one of opposition. And Fickert is very clear that there are often, he says what gets left out is that there are demonic forces that are involved in these things. But this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because sometimes telling you the truth gets you into trouble, right? And, and it's even simple things, right? Your friend asks you what they think of their, what you think of their new haircut. Uh, or your, your brother asks you to check out his, uh, his garage band's latest recording and says, what do you think? Or maybe your boss asks you, how do you really feel about my leadership style? Or what do you really think about our company? And I don't know about you, but I've also seen enough mafia movies to know that being a witness can sometimes get you killed, right? There is a reason that witness protection programs exist. And in writing this section of Revelation, or about the section of Revelation, Eugene Peterson, he's got a great little book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder. He says this, it is difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. It is difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. If you give Jesus and his kingdom your highest loyalty and allegiance, you will at some point in some way experience suffering. Maybe you'll be left out of key networking opportunities at work because you won't go to certain kinds of events or certain kinds of venues. Or, or maybe you'll find yourself single for far longer than you thought or imagined because you're not willing to participate in certain kinds of dating apps or hookup culture. Or maybe you are ridiculed and misunderstood because you hold to a pro-life ethic from the moment of conception to final breath. And, and people don't understand why. If, again, if you are never uncomfortable because of your allegiance to Jesus, you need to go back to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three and ask yourself the question, where, where am I compromising? Maybe without even realizing it, because that was the problem in some of those churches. If you are a parent or a grandparent, and play a significant role or in a child's life, a teacher, how are you helping kids prepare for this? For the fact that sometimes they're going to face opposition for what they believe, for what they hold dear. Because suffering is inevitable for faithful witnesses. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. And actually, well, we shouldn't be excited about it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we shouldn't say, wring our hands that something's wrong. No, Jesus said this is how it would be. Jesus was the ultimate faithful witness, and he was the one who suffered the most. But he suffered, or rather because he suffered for us, we know that suffering will not have the last word over us. And that brings us to our third point about the story today, and that is that the lamb will end it. 
Because if you keep reading after verse 17 into verse 18, you get these words. The nations were enraged, but your wrath has come, and the time has come for the dead to be judged, and the time has come to give to your servants the prophets their reward, as well as to the saints. That's the church. That's the language of, of the church. Not just a special class of people, but the saints is the, is the church. And to those who revere your name, both small and great, and the time is to come to destroy those who destroy the earth. The, the time has come, that's verse 18, to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now that language of destroy those who destroy the earth is not just merely referring to somehow uh, those who have polluted the physical environment, right? Now, though, for example, a number of Native American theologians, uh, Christian theologians recently have added great insight to the importance uh, of the church's thoughtfulness about place and rootedness and land in the created world. But here, this language of earth stands in contrast, not to, uh, just again, just the mere physical environment, but God's space versus human space, right? In the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the heavens and the earth. So this is those who are destroying the place that God has given to humans. Heaven is God's space, earth is human space. The whole goal of the project is for heaven and earth to be joined together. That's what we find at the end of Revelation, that heaven comes down and is joined to earth. But there are people and forces who are destroying the place that God has given for his people to live and to reign and to rule. And God is saying that he will end that. He will put a stop to the opposition. Those who have destroyed and ruined God's good world, who have oppressed his image bearers, in the end will, re- will be destroyed. The slain lamb who sits upon the throne has promised it. But, it. but it isn't a spiteful or proud or arrogant judgment. It's not a judgment uh, on those who are pleading to be saved and rescued and helped. And God's just like, nah, I don't think so. Now, this is God's settled opposition to anyone or anything who would stand against his purposes to bring rescue to the world. In the end, God will not allow those who are persistent in rejecting him to destroy and jeopardize the rescue that he is bringing for those who come to him. Even the judgments themselves are designed to to wake people up, to bring them, to bring us to a place where we see our complicity with evil and run to the Lamb for rescue. Just like the plagues in Egypt were partly designed to bring Pharaoh to repentance. That was part of the goal, right, of those. But if, like Pharaoh, some persist in hardness of heart, God will let evil collapse in on itself and be destroyed. I mean, that's the picture of all these, these images in Revelation and even the images of the plague. It's the, it's the reversal. It's the undoing of creation, right? That creation is designed to work, um, work and, and focused in this, this place where everything works and aligns together. What do you have in the plagues? You have darkness coming back. You have nature out of control. It's falling in on itself. This is what God does if people reject I love how, again, how Michael Gorman puts this. He says, finally, in the book of Revelation, divine judgment is not an end in itself. It is God's plan B when humanity persists in evil rather than repenting. It then becomes a means, a necessary means to be sure, but still only a means to the fulfillment of God's plan to heal the nations and create a space for all people to flourish in harmony with one another before God. Yes, the sequences, if you go back and read, and I encourage you to read, go back and read 8 through 11 this week in Revelation. There are scenes of vivid, disturbing violence. 
And, and they're designed to be. <laughs> if, if we read these things and we're like, oh, it's no big deal, then we, we haven't really read them. They are supposed to be disturbing. But they are meant to give hope to the suffering people of God. The evil, the sadness, the oppression, the wrongdoing will not always get the last word. Remember, Revelation isn't primarily written to Babylon. This book isn't primarily addressed to to Rome, to the forces of evil outside the church. It's written to Christians as a source of hope as they endure in their witness to the Lamb who is slain. So wait patiently. I love how Tim Keller puts this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, God will only allow evil to to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it attends. God will only allow evil to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. We live in a world where the wrong seems off so strong. And in 2020, more than perhaps uh, in any other time in recent memory, We live in a world where the wrong seems off so strong, but God is the ruler yet. The lamb who is slain will rescue and rule, and those who stand in resistance to him will not in the end succeed. The destroyers will be destroyed. And so we wait patiently, bearing witness to the lamb who was slain, whose kingdom is coming as surely as suffering is real. The lamb will end it, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He defeated evil. He sets us free from its grip and enslavement through death and resurrection. And because Jesus defeats evil, he doesn't even do it on evil's terms, though. He doesn't just return evil for evil. He doesn't play evil's game. He doesn't defeat it by raw power. Rather, he defeats it by giving in to death. He overcomes evil with good through sacrifice, beating evil at its own game, bringing about the very opposite of what it intended. And in communion, we are nourished and strengthened for that work of witness and worship and waiting. And as we remember and celebrate the paradoxical defeat of death by death, we are nourished for the hope that we too will overcome with Jesus.